Well, good morning. It's good to have you here today. So if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn over to 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapters 11 and 12 in our time together this morning. Several, uh, uh, man, several years ago, my goodness, over two decades ago, I guess that is several years ago, I was, uh, I was in Denver uh, taking some courses at Denver Seminary, and one of the guys whose ministry I greatly respected for his, he just understood ministry and getting people involved in ministry, and he wrote a whole series of books, and his, his ministry had taken off, and I, one of the reasons I was at Denver Seminary, being there, I wanted to take a class with this guy, you know. And while I was there, on a particular Sunday, everybody said, hey, you guys need to come on over to the church where this guy ministers. He was a pastor. And so I went, and I sat there in the pew, and I watched a broken man come onto the platform. And he looked out over the congregation, and he confessed that he'd been sleeping around with one of the assistants there at the church for years. I was a young guy. I wanted to go into ministry. I thought to myself, how is it possible that your influence over people and the writing of books and your public acclaim can be soaring off the charts but your private world can be an absolute wreck. And it, it, it was disconcerting a bit, to be perfectly honest with you, until I thought about it and thought, you know, it's not at all new. It is, it is the way of many, unfortunately, not only in our day, but throughout biblical history. And as James has said, we're coming to a very sobering text today. Sins that are committed, heinous sins, by a man after God's own heart. And so, as we walk through this story, um, I want you to feel the weight of sin. I really do. But I also want you to see grace and mercy and forgiveness. Because they, they, they all become wedded here. Here's one of the things that I find to be interesting in this passage. Um, if, if you begin reading in 2 Samuel 11, don't, don't let this passage mess you up. I know I got First Chronicles there. Don't relax. But 2, 2 Samuel 11, if you begin reading in verse 1, and then if you jumped over to chapter 12 and verse uh, 26 through 31, that's exactly what you have recorded here in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The, 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 the writer of 1 Chronicles it has a little bit of a different agenda, and as he's working through David's life, when he gets to this particular story, look at what he says. It happened that in the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led the troops of the army and destroyed the land of the Ammonites. And he came and besieged Rabbah, 
But David remained in Jerusalem. Joab struck Rabbah and destroyed it, and David took the crown of the king from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and and it was precious. It was precious stone. Then he placed upon the head of da- placed upon the head of David. He brought out the booty of the city, a very large amount. The people who were in it were brought out, and he set them to work with saws and iron implements and axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David returned to Jerusalem, and all the nations with him. Do you know what? If you were living in the ancient world at this time in Jerusalem. Publicly speaking, that's all you would have seen. As we had said last week, there was a series of battles that were being fought. And in one after another after another, David is victorious. They take the Ammonites and they push them back into Rabbah, modern-day Amman in Jordan, incidentally. They, they push them back into that city. And then they go north and they have all kinds of victories there. They come back to Jerusalem and they're going to wait till the spring. Ground is settled. It's a good time to actually go back. And then they're going to go back and they're going to besiege that city. And all you would know as a person living in Jerusalem at that time is that, okay, Joab went back out. And within a year, a little over a year, David went down and got final victory there and came back to Jerusalem. (laughs) David's public ministry is a success. Do you see? But the inspired storyteller wants you to know in 2 Samuel that at the end of the day, God doesn't care about somebody's public ministry. He cares about the heart. And so the bulk of chapter 11 and 12, although it's bookended with, with, with his public success, Where it really goes, where the story really goes, is in his private world. Nothing's changed with God, has it, folks? I I don't care how powerful a person is. I don't care how they can preach. I don't care how they can teach. I don't care any of those things at the end. Well, I mean, we care. But at the end of the day, that's not what's most important, is it? Ever. So... You say, what in the world is that, Finkbeiner? Oh, man, it's, it's... Although, Tom you commented on this a couple of weeks ago. He said, I like your bell curve. So, there it is, Tom. I, I was thinking of you when I actually put... I wasn't just thinking of you. I was thinking of the passage. But, but if, 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 if... Let me just tell you. You say, I can't even read all those numbers up there. It's okay. It's okay. I'm just trying to give you a feel for the text. And here's what's really, really important. If I came to you over the David and Bathsheba story, chapters 11 and 12, and I said, choose for me the protagonist and the antagonist for this story, who would you choose? When I, when I teach back in the seminary and I te- teach about narrative literature and stuff like that, I often will bring this passage up. Boy, people don't quite know what to do. Oh, I, I think it's David and and. I think it's David and Uriah. No, 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 no. Oh, it's David and Bathsheba. No, no, she's only in... No, that doesn't quite work. She's kind of involved with him. It's David and Nathan. I would say you're getting close. You know, at the end of the day, you know who the ultimate tension is in chapters 11 and 12? 
It's David and who? And God. And let me tell you something. God is better than the FBI. He always gets his man. So watch here in the story and watch what happens and you will find, oh man, I read this passage and I just want you to know, I've never committed adultery and I've never killed anybody, okay? But man, when I read about the strategies that David uses, I see myself written all over the place, okay? So you may, as we're going through here, adultery might be your issue. Okay, then by God's grace, deal with it. But it could be a whole host of other things too, okay? So let's read through and see what actually happens here in the story. So David stays back. He has Joab go and besiege Rabbah. And, and, and sometimes I've heard people preach and say, David was wrong. He, he shouldn't have been doing that. If he would have been where he should have been, he would have never seen the woman and blah, 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 blah. And all I would say is, um, that's just not true. If I'm a king, I'm going to have my guy get the place set up, and when they're ready, I'm going to come in. The problem was not that David was in Jerusalem when he should have been there. The problem is what David did when the allurement and the temptation came. Okay? So let's, let's work our way through the story. So look at chapter 11 here in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And we also know from verse 4, she, was, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. The ancient world wasn't all unusual, and, and Jerusalem would have been this way too, you would all, especially the way Jerusalem was set up, but, but it, would, it would kind of be terraced. The homes would be terraced. And, 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 and at the top, typically you would have the king terraced and all of his officials and other homes as they go down. And so, I don't know, it's a hot, maybe it was a hot afternoon and he was waiting to the end, but he, he comes walking out and he's looking, able to look down on the rooftops of the places below. And he watches a woman come out. She disrobes, coming out of her menstrual period. And David's problem isn't that he sees her. It's that he doesn't turn away. Okay? It it wasn't the first look. It was the continued stare. And David watched as she disrobed. And his eyes traversed into an area meant only for for her husband. And notice what he does here in verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, think about this, folks. If you're a servant of the king in that day, you don't normally use the direct approach with the king. You don't normally say, Hey, man, that would be adultery. No. You you pose a question. Um. Because David calls a servant up. He said, look, I like to try to get my neighbor, let, know my neighbors a little bit more. Who lives there? there? Who lives there? Or something like that is what he did. And, and when he pointed, the servant knew exactly what was going on, came back to him and said, um, did, did you, were you aware that she's married to Uriah, who's one of your 30 mighty men that we read about in, 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 in chapter 23 of this book? This, this is... This is a mercenary. This is a guy who has come from a different nation 
And he's made a full commitment to you, David, to say, I'm willing to die for you. You're my guy. I will do anything for you. And he's married. Now think about this, folks. You remember last week with Mephibosheth? And we said that David was so overwhelmed by the incredible loyal love of God that he began looking out to just extend that to anybody else, right? He wanted to be a man that would keep his promises. And in this story, everything gets reversed because it's always the nature of sin. When this is violated, this is violated. It's always the way it works. But David would have none of the questioning from that guy. The guy said, David, like, do you know who this is? Didn't matter to David at all. I have wondered, is it possible that the passage from Exodus 20 kind of flashed across his mind, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. I mean, like, it's right there. Is it possible that flashed through? If it did, David pushed it to the side. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned home. I'm really kind of glad that we're left the sordid details. But it does kind of sound kind of cold, almost like kind of an ancient date rape. It's kind of the way it feels to me just reading it. And I'm not saying she's not culpable. She was culpable too. But it's pretty tough when you're in the presence of a king. Just saying. At that point, I'm assuming that David kind of went, well, that was good. Now let's get back to what I'm supposed to be doing. But the story takes another turn, doesn't it? And look at what happens in verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David got a note somehow. He flipped it open and he said, I'm pregnant. The note said, I'm pregnant, sign B. And he knew exactly who it was. What would David do at this point? He has options, doesn't he? One of his options would be to say, what have I done? I, I've taken another man's wife, a, a man who I loved and would die for me. I'm going to go before God. I'm going to confess this thing. I'm going to confess it to your eye. I'm going to confess. And God, what happens, happens. I'll tell you, folks, that would have been the best thing he could have done at this point. But David does hear what he has done at other times. David has a tendency of playing the deceive game. The cover-up game. So does Doug Finkbeiner, incidentally. (laughs) You know, you get exposed and you have that moment, God, will I confess it? Or if I don't confess it, I'm going to cover it up. Like, haven't you been there? We've all been there. We've all fallen to those kinds of things. And David chooses the second route, unfortunately. And he thinks to himself, she's pregnant. She told me she's about a month, six weeks into this thing. 
He's out there. I get uh, to get back. Sleeps with. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring Uriah back. Sleeps with his wife. All right, six, seven weeks. He, yeah, these military guys don't know numbers real well anyway. It'll all work out. He'll think the baby's his. He's got it all figured out in his head. So that's his plan. So look at what he does. David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And David thinks to himself, I did it! I'm so good. And what a hypocrite. He brings in Uriah. Hey, man, how's, jo- how's Joab treating you out there? Is, it, is he good? I mean, sometimes I worry about him. And how's the battle? You doing all right? You feeling okay? I mean, you know, you and I, one of my 30 men. <laughs> and here, go back to your house and here's a gift. And as he left, he thought, yes, I got this guy. Yeah. But look what verse 9 says. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. Now what are you going to do? Do you see? I mean, if I confess it now, he's going to know not only the sin I committed, but that I'm a sham. I'm a total put-on. I'm a total hypocrite. I didn't care about him at all. It was a total setup. Ah. Get a man drunk, he'll do anything. That's what I'll do. So look at verse 10. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, uh, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go, go down to your house? Like everybody does that. This is a, medi- a, a military leave, you know? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwells in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I don't know this, but I can't help but wonder. Did David blush when he said that? Can you imagine? Here's Uriah that says, I have every right to go home and sleep with my wife. But when I think of the guys out there, my comrades, I, I, I don't want to do that because I want to stay focused on them. When David could care less about them, he was trying to cover up a sin with this woman. Do you see how he, man, I, if he didn't blush, I don't know. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. I, I, I just, that would make a whole lot of sense to me. So notice what happens, verse 11, uh, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next David invited him. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David gets him as drunk as a skunk. I mean, just the guy's wiped, wasted. And he just, why? He doesn't go home. And David's in a panic mode. Like, what do you do now? 
When you're desperate, you'll do almost anything. Look at what it says. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab doesn't exactly carry it out the way David said. David's saying, hey, stick him in the very front, like right by the wall. Push everybody back. And it's like, that's going to be kind of obvious. But he puts him with a group of men. And what would happen then sometimes, the besieged city would send people out to kind of push people back a little bit. And he put him in that group. And they got pushed back. And they pushed him back into the city. And as they did, he was shot and killed by an orchard. Okay, so Joab changed it up a little bit, but he knew exactly where to put him in the most dangerous spot. And Uriah dies. And the messenger comes back, and Joab even tells the messenger, because he's thinking David's going to kind of play the game here a little bit. So when, when you go, so he tells the messenger, when you go back and you tell him all this, and David gets really, really upset on what I did, then just say, oh, and by the way, just want you to know Uriah the Hittite died also. And, and here's, here's what I'm thinking. David was so relieved because when the messenger came, he told the story a little bit differently and told him Uriah died. He was so relieved that he wasn't able to play the game like, hey, Joab, what's Joab doing putting our men so close like that? He was so relieved that Uriah was dead. He just said, hey, happens in war sometimes. That's how battles go. Look at verse 25 where David says this. David says to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage Joab for me. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. There's no indication that she knew any of this. And when the morning was over, I often wonder how she felt when she found out, but that's another one. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. If the story would end there, you would have to say to yourself, David did it. He pulled it off. He, I mean, as, as hard as it was, the cover-up, the drunk, and the whole thing... The messenger doesn't know. Nobody knows. Joab knows, but nobody else. Joab won't tell anybody. He's a good guy that way. I've married her. The kid is born. We'll be fine. But the inspired storyteller wants you to know that it's actually just heating up. Look at the last statement in verse 27. You know, when you read the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, you read narrative. You don't get a lot of editorial insertions. You know, where the editor is telling a story and he steps in and and says, oh, by the way, this is is what God thinks about all this. You don't get a lot of that. So when you get it, it's gold. And here's the gold. 
the editorial, the editor, the writer steps aside and makes this editorial comment. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that is going to launch us into that whole area where there's that ultimate bumpy bell curve thing. Chapter 12. Here's one of the things, I don't know if you noticed it when I was reading it through. I tried to emphasize it a little bit, but you might not have picked it up. Seven times in chapter 11, David sends. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends here. He sends a messenger there. He sends for Uriah. He sends Uriah back. He sends, sends, sends all the way through. David is a king, and he's in control, and he'll send and control the whole situation, and nobody will stop him but God. And look at how 12.1 begins. It's not a mistake. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord, what? Sent Nathan to David. David, do you want to play the scent game? You want to play the control game? I'll play the control game with you. And Nathan is ushered in before the king. And again, if you're going to give the king bad news, you better have a whopping good introduction. And he does. I mean, the, this introduction is off the charts. What story do you tell a king who loves sheep? You tell him a story about sheep. And he paints this beautiful picture. This one guy has just one sheep. He loves that sheep. He's with that sheep. He adores that sheep. It's just him and that sheep all the time. This other guy has all kinds of sheep, and he has a friend come, and he doesn't want to kill one of his sheep. He's going to go, and he steals that guy's sheep and brings it. And David's listening to the story and thinking, what kind of a fiend would do that to sheep? That guy... We'll pay fourfold for what he's done. We're going to do this by the book. And about that time, Nathan thinks, I think I'm ready for my punchline. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. How do you think that hit him? What were you... What was that like? David just indicted himself before God. Nathan goes on to say this. Thus says the Lord, the the God of Israel, "I, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I I gave you your master's house and wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. You had rights over all that stuff. And, And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Do you know what God is saying? David, I have been so gracious to you. I've given you privilege and opportunity. I've given you relationship with me permanently. The the ability to influence entire generations. Gracious, I've given you all these gifts. And you've stolen. David had seven wives. What's he need another one for? Because you know what? Lust doesn't care how many wives you currently have. It doesn't care. It just wants the next one. That's how it works. goes on to say this. 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this, uh, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Folks, this story sounds like an absolute tragedy, doesn't it? The only thing that will move it out of the tragic realm is what David does next, which he should have done months before. David, verse 13, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David, why didn't you say that a long time ago? Why play the rebel? And for all those months, you were going up and you were playing the game of worshiping God with the Levites and doing the whole thing and shaking your head and raising your hands and whatever, dancing, whatever else you did. You did that week after week after week after week and your heart was as far away from God as imaginable. You played a hypocrite. And it wasn't to this point, but praise God. Folks, the only reason this story is not a tragedy, this would have been a tragedy if David would have said, get out of my palace and don't come back. It would have been the most tragic of all stories. But the beauty of this story as he finally said, God, I've sinned against you. What could God have done? God could have killed him. He deserved to die. Do you know for what he did? There's a law, you know. God could have removed him from being king. God could have done a whole host of things. But listen to the merciful words. Verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13b. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you will not die. Now, I don't know exactly when Psalm 32 was written. I know when Psalm 51 was written out of this whole... I mean, if you want to read a psalm, if you want to go back and say, what did David's confession look like? You can read Psalm 51. It's powerful. It's because at the end of the day, when I sin against my wonderful wife, Sherry, who's sitting there on the first pew, which is very hard to do because she's so wonderful, but nonetheless, I have my times. When I sin against Sherry, I am sinning against Sherry. I, have violate, I am violating something on, the, on this level. But at the end of the day, where's my ultimate sin? It's always against God. And that's what Psalm 51 tells us. But Psalm 32 says this. Just listen to this part of the psalm. I mean, can you see David writing this out of this event? How happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How happy is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you 
It did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. Folks, that's how it's supposed to work. Each and every day, if you know Jesus Christ, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you just need to come to Jesus and be forgiven and learn what it means to walk with him. That's it. Because I'm speaking to Christians. But you're a Christian. This should be something. We should be repenting every day of our lives on a consistent basis. That should just be part of who we are. As we sin, we, we, we confess to the person, we bring it back to God, we God, and we go on, we go on. The problem in this passage is he's not only sinned, he's harboring that sin, he's holding that sin, he's covering up that sin, he won't give it up because he doesn't want to be found out, and he's found out. So the man who covers up and deceives is deceived through a parable, which reveals. You can't beat God at this stuff. He's too good. You find it all the way through. So God's forgiveness is total, complete. But his discipline often has entailments, doesn't it? Look at what Nathan goes on to say. Verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. How God works out his discipline is the work of God, and there's mystery to it, and we must always leave that with him. But I do know this. Whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens, as a father does the son in whom he delights. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a child of God. The life of Christ is in you. God will not allow you to just go your own way, stubbornly covering up, smiling for people, having victories on the outside, waving when when your life is a wreck. He won't allow it. And in his time and in his way, he will expose it. And you know, that's the good grace of God, isn't it? The worst thing for David is to just let him go. No, 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 no. God loves him too much for that one. And this rebel will be brought back. Isn't it interesting how Nathan describes the essence of his sin? He says, David... You have despised a sovereign God and you have despised his goodness. You know, when I look at my own sin, you know what I normally do when I, when I reach out and sin? Not always, but it often works this way. I say things like, I know God doesn't want this. However, I kind of like it. And I may even soften it up by saying, I think I need it. And God should have given it to me. And so I step out and I reach for the forbidden fruit. Thinking that God is not enough. It is a lie from from hell, from the get-go, that God is not good and God is not enough. 
And when he identifies sin, it is the sin that says, God, you are not enough. I don't like something that you're saying, and there's something I need. I don't care. I'm going to go out for it because you're not good. And that is a whole despising of the incredible grace of God. And that's exactly what I do. It's amazing. And I know so much more than David. I know the ultimate David, the son, Jesus. I know he died for me. I know he gave me the spirit. I know a lot more than David does. And I play the same foolish games. Say, God, I know what you said, but I need that. It's what we do, folks. David, in this story, as you know, the baby dies. D- David, David comes before God and he pleads for the child's life. And, and then finally when the child dies, the servants come and they say, hey, who, who wants to tell the king that the child died? I don't know, you tell him. I, no, I'm not, okay, I'll tell him. Um, he died. And David cleans himself all up, goes and eats. The servants go like, what's that all about? And he said, look, while the child was alive, there was hope. I thought I would just keep praying. When the child was gone, the child was gone. He won't be able to come back here. One day, I will join him after I die. I'll die like my mother, like the child. And so that's, that's what he says. Here's what I want you to see, folks. This, is, this, this story, the way it's written by the inspired storyteller, it is brilliant. Do you realize at every point when Bathsheba is being, has been introduced, she is being introduced as Uriah's wife. Even when the child, David is still married to her, now married to her, but still at this point she's understood as Uriah's wife. That doesn't turn until you get to verse 24. Look at what it says of chapter 12. The child died. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. It's the first time the storyteller calls, us, calls her his wife. He went into her. He lay with her. She bore him a son, and he called his name what? Solomon. I know that name. Isn't that the guy that's going to be the next king? Mm-hmm. Whoa, 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 whoa. So one son, son dies as God carries out his discipline, and from that relationship that was wrong, they're now married, they now have another son, and, and he's going to be the next king? Mm-hmm. Look what else it says. He called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Folks, that is grace. I, I, I don't always understand the ways of God. I don't. But here, here's what I know. God is always just. And God is always gracious. How that gets worked out in lives, I have to leave that with him just amazes me. One son dies, the next son 
is going to be the next king. Which will usher in another king and another king and another king and another king and go all the way to Jesus, for heaven's sakes. It's amazing to me, isn't it? That's the grace of God. And so when you think of this story, God certainly yet mercifully disciplines a repentant David after a rebellious David had despised his grace through his adultery and its wicked cover-up of murder. How about for us? I just changed the outline a little bit. Didn't put David in it. Just let it broad speak. Broad. Do we ever function as rebels who commit sin and then cover up? I was going to say raise your hand. You don't have to. I'll just raise mine. Don't we? You know Christ. But there are times you hold that sin. You harbor that sin. You cover up that sin. And your insides are eating you alive. You know it. You feel it. You know it's wrong. But you foolishly persist. You know what I'm saying? But then, when you confess, yes, there's entailments. There always are. But there's restored relationship. And there's forgiveness. And there's hope. And there's still purpose for living. But this is a sobering text. It tells us that if we despise God's grace, we'll experience God's discipline. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. So here's what I would ask you. Will you keep short accounts with your sins? Which means you're repenting all the time. That's what I'm asking you to do. Like all the time we should be repenting. Always. Every day. Bringing it back to, oh God, I did that again. God, what am I thinking? I did, ah. Yeah, that's how we should live our lives. Constantly. Just always repenting. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know Christ, you can't do any of this stuff. You need to bow your knee before him and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of all my sins so I don't ever have to pay for them in eternity and bring me into a relationship with God. I want to become Jesus' follower. I I want Jesus. That's where it begins. But as a follower of Christ, keep short records on your sin. You say, but Doug, I've been down David's path. Maybe not the same sins, but the same harboring and protecting and all that stuff. It's never too late to confess. Yeah, but if, if I, if people know, if there's entailments, but there's always freedom there, folks. It's, it's the only way home. Confession is the only way home. Please, don't go down that dark path. If the man after God's own heart could do it, even though we know so much more than him and we have the spirit within us, we could do it too. Don't do it. Keep, deal with your sin on a daily basis. And don't go down in that corridor. Stay away from it. And if you're there, no matter what it costs, confess. And you will find 
that God is merciful. Father, this is a hard text. It hits us all, Lord. Because every one of us are sinners, Lord. We, we love ourselves. We love to work our side of the street. We're willing to manipulate to control those things. We, 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 just, we play these incredibly silly games and try to control life when we live in the presence of a God who controls all. It's, just, it's, it's crazy. Lord, show us powerfully yourself. You, the great sovereign God who controls all. You, the great God who is good to his people. Father, may we constantly come into your presence, confessing our sins. For if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And Lord, I pray. I pray for one here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. May they know the ultimate freedom and joy that can only come by bowing the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May this be the day that they confess him. Father, for believers who perhaps some have wandered down a path and they've gone so far they think there's no way out. There's always a way out. It may be painful and hard, but it will always be good. Lord, show them that there's a way home. And may they take it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.